Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And are you still up north on the beach? I am still up north. Although I, I, I was hearing the fan on my surface spin just before the show, which is annoying because it almost never runs. Really? Right? Yeah. So I pull up Task Manager as always, you know, take a look. It turns out it's Chrome, which is not surprising. Right. Some runaway web page that was doing something horrible. Actually, it's the GPU. Close the web page, everything goes away. But I noticed... They've taken something away in Windows 10 that I used to live by that I loved. You can no longer check how many threads Outlook is using in Task Manager. Oh, no. <laughs> My world is crushed. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? How do you mock Outlook without having a thread count? 77 threads and not one for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, I've been preparing for Keto Fest, which is already come and gone yeah. by the time this has release. But my Better Know framework today is a public service announcement. Oh, I like that. It's just on the topic of type 2 diabetes. So, roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? So, we all know that type 2 diabetes is a huge epidemic worldwide, and especially in Western countries. Yep, Western diet. Yeah, the Western diet seems to be particularly bad for it. And as a lot of people know that I've started a podcast on, you know, this topic of reversing type 2 diabetes, and it's been going for a couple of years. It's called Two Keto Dudes with Richard Morris, formerly CTO of DevExpress. Anyway, I want to talk just for a minute about the research that Verta Health is doing, because this is some of the first science that is specifically done on a dietary intervention to reverse type 2 diabetes. And uh, Verta was started by Professor Stephen Finney, who is one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the well-formulated ketogenic diet. And it's at vertahealth.com. But if you go slash research, you can see that they're doing a randomized control trial study about the effects of a low-carb, well-formulated ketogenic diet on type 2 diabetes. So it's an ongoing study that's been given the green light to go for five years. There was a paper wow. 10 weeks or so and then another at one year, and the two-year has been submitted and is going through peer review. So, as you know, Richard, in science, if you don't do a randomized control trial, you don't have anything. You yeah. know, you don't, there's no, it's all conjecture and hearsay. And anecdotal data. And anecdotal data, yeah, exactly. So, association doesn't mean causation and all of that. Correlation doesn't mean causation. So, here's what they found over after a year, insulin therapy was reduced or eliminated in 94% of participants. Wow. The sulfonylureas, I don't even know what that means, but those were a medication for type 2 diabetes, were entirely eliminated in the CCI, and that's a continuous care initiative, uh, basically means an ongoing remote medicine application for halting and reversing diabetes. So after one year, the reduction of HbA1c, which is an average of blood glucose over three months, was reduced from 7.6, give or take 0.009%, to 6.3, give or take 0.07%, effectively reversing type 2, which is greater than 6.5, to pre-diabetes, which is 5.9 to 6.5. So they also saw improvements in cardiovascular risks, inflammation, and a whole bunch of other markers. So this is the first real study of its kind, and the results are on par with my experiences and the experiences of hundreds, if not thousands, of others. 
And you can see some of the success stories about this at success.2keto.com. All right, I'm off my soapbox now. All right. Yeah, that's it. It's good news, and it's real science. And it's ongoing science, too. They're still doing their research. Yep. So that's what I got today. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1553, the show we did in June, with Phil Hack after GitHub got acquired by Microsoft. Right. And I've uh, got a bunch of comments on that show, but I like this one particularly because it's got nothing to do with the acquisition of GitHub at all. If you recall, the comment I read in that show was from a fellow who had actually figured out how many curved monitors you'd need to go all the way around <laughs> yeah, in a circle. that's right. The answer was about 10. And so Kaj Bonfils responded to that where he said, so I followed the advice, advice, mm. and got 10 curved monitors and a bunch of graphics cards only to find out that Windows doesn't support 3D screen configurations. Mm. So Windows is seeing my setup now as a long row of monitors instead of a circle. Now I have to scroll almost 12 meters to move the cursor two centimeters on the other screen when I reach the edge. I've created a user voice suggestion, but if you interview someone for the Windows team, could you please ask them to prioritize this for the next release of Windows 10? <laughs> Hashtag full circle. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, dude, do you know yeah. any Mouse Without Borders app or you know, Share Mouse app? You can actually set up no edges and it will do the full wraparound for you. So... Mouse Without Borders is awesome, but you do have to get down into IP address land. So Yeah, I've been using ShareMouse more because it's one of those ones that just sort of works. You right. turn it on and it goes. But the big right. thing there is, like, as soon as, of course, I'm solving a technical problem this problem person probably doesn't actually have. But right. the real question he has to answer for me, Cash, is where's your taskbar? Because yeah, right. don't tell me it's on the bottom of all 10 <laughs> screens, because that's kind of nutty. That's a lot of taskbar. Well, but you do need it on every screen that you're on, right? Because you might want to access this app over here, this app over there, this app over there, right? <laughs> you don't want to have I... to go back to the mothership to get a, a a window to drag across nine screens. Well, this and this is where, you know, I don't click on icons anymore to, yeah. to do anything on these big screen machines. I just type in the name of the app Yep, for exactly that problem. Yep. But I do definitely deal with the template issue of organizing screens when you have that many monitors. Yeah. I also, you know, get into this whole issue of where do you look? I don't know which way to look anymore. Right. Anyway, Cash, thanks for supporting our silliness and copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. Help me out here, guys. Send us a tweet. We'll do a five-year double-blind research study on it. Oh, geez. Let you know the results at the end. Let's see. Let's let me say this. Send us a tweet. They're sugar free. <laughs> <laughs> They're part of a well formulated ketogenic, ketogenic diet. diet. That's right. <laughs> they have absolutely no calories. Absolutely no, calories. no sugar. No starch. <laughs> Knock yourself out. You live longer. <laughs> they might be bad on your eyes, though, in large quantities. Right. <laughs> Isn't everything. Isn't really? everything, yeah. Especially <laughs> if you have nine monitors. All right, well, let's bring Ben Hall back on the show. Based in London, Ben is the founder of Katakoda at katakoda.com, an interactive learning and training platform for software engineers. 
and it is amazing. If you haven't checked it out, do so now. Katakota specializes in enabling developers to understand cloud-native technologies, including Docker, Kubernetes, and OpenShift. Welcome back, Ben. Well, thank you very much. It's very good to be back. Yeah, it's very good to have you back. You have the distinction of being the first to utter the word Docker on .NET Rocks. That's very surprising, but very cool. <laughs> well, it was a long time ago, actually. <laughs> it was a long time ago. You yeah. were early into containers, my friend. Yeah. For certainly in our community, anyway. This is um, true. I was very fortunate to be on a project which was cutting edge, which had both its advantages and disadvantages, as mm. all cutting edge projects do. But yeah, it did expose me to lots of the uh, container-related technologies very early on. And it's been great to share that with people like yourself and your audience. Yeah, no, we, pre we appreciate it. And, and of course, Katakota wouldn't be possible without containers, right? It's literally your, your whole engine for creating the, the training space. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Kind of Katakota, definitely significantly easier thanks to containers and container-related technologies. The very nature of being able to give you an environment which has been configured with all of the tooling and all of the frameworks, such as .NET itself, directly in your browser in a nice, secure, safe manner mm. is definitely down partly to containers and container technologies. You know, it's, it's really great that containers and databases that exist in the cloud sort of evolved Similarly, at the same time, uh, databases were around a little bit before, but, you know, that makes it really, really convenient to host the data in outside of the container, not take on those dependencies. It's just a configuration. Yeah, fundamentally. And that's kind of something which I've been pushing more recently with some of the content which I've been writing and some of the talks I've been giving is that containers aren't anything magical or anything special. At the end of the day, they're still just a process running on your machine. Just so happens that they've been configured in a much more secure way and they've been made possible in a nice packaged up format so that they're easy to move around and deploy onto different systems. But fundamentally, they're still the same Linux or Windows process that we've been running for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So what's new in the world of containers since we last talked? So... There's lots of different things happening, and it's more getting to the point now where companies are starting to adopt and actually roll all of these technologies out into production. And so, where we have Docker and we have containers at kind of like the foundation level, um, the emergence of Kubernetes has definitely become much stronger, right. especially in larger enterprises and organizations, and seeing as a way that they can use Kubernetes to manage the complexity of all of the different systems and all of the applications which are running within a company. And so that's been really interesting to see companies moving a lot more quickly than what you would previously imagine, given such a large technology change. Yeah. And then seeing how providers adopt similar kind of approach, making sure that they have a Kubernetes offering being made available and actually being a key component of how they're building and looking towards the future of their different cloud offerings. It does seem like Kubernetes is kind of one, right? I mean, there's a bunch of different orchestrators, but when I look at Azure, Amazon, Google, they're all got a Kubernetes offering that's pretty similar. You should be able to run a Kubernetes 
container infrastructure on any of their platforms with almost no changes. Yeah, completely. And that's, I think, partly one of the reasons why Kubernetes has got such a large community following behind it. And so at the end of the day, Kubernetes is designed for managing and orchestrating your containers in production. And so when you need to deploy your application, you can let Kubernetes manage, okay, we want it distributed across multiple different nodes so that if we lose a node or a machine, we don't lose the entire application. Mm. We can make sure that only certain teams can manage certain applications so they don't get conflicts and aspects like that. And if we need to scale up quickly and add more resources, then Kubernetes is there to support that level of functionality. And so because it's kind of got that focus, it becomes very much of a foundation of how people can build on top of that kind of like control plane, shall we say. Right. And because it's a foundation, it means that people can write opinions and kind of services around and on top of that, which is why we see all of this kind of multi-cloud integrations and multiple cloud vendors supporting it because at the end of the day, it's a foundation that they can utilize and build on top of based on what their customers are actually seeing, what they're needing. Do you see people using containers without an orchestrator? You know, I mean, it's sort of necessary right now. Yeah, it depends on your type of application and kind of where you are in your container journey. There's a lot of value that you can get from containers just running them locally on your laptop. I'm like, I need an access to SQL Server. Okay, so you can now run SQL Server inside of a container and you don't have to go through the 20 different wizard steps in order to get it configured and set up. Instead, you can just run out of the container and like, great, everyone's now on exactly the same version, exactly the same configuration, Mm -hmm. and everyone is happy without the previous kind of configuration and manual steps required. So I guess the corollary then is, when do you need an orchestrator? Exactly. And so that's where the more of the interesting question is, like, when do you need one? And then what type of orchestrator do you need? And so there's a couple of different options available, which are kind of getting the main major awareness. There's Swarm from Docker, so Docker Swarm. Right. And that's great if you just need a couple of machines running and you need your kind of small business applications running. They need to be reliable, easy to update, easy to manage. Mm -hmm. You just want low overheads. And that's a great starting point. You don't have some of the complexities. You don't have some of the overheads of other orchestrators. And it's a great place to start learning and becoming familiar and confident with what it means to run an application inside containers and distributed across multiple machines, which people may not be familiar with yet. And Swarm's also open source and free? Yeah, so it comes as part of Docker. So when you install Docker, you get Swarm out the box. And so you can do right. Docker Swarm init as a command, and that will kind of like create the starting cluster and get you started in running a multi-node Docker cluster. And then, obviously, Docker has their own enterprise packages and Docker Enterprise Edition, which is designed for kind of like larger deployments. And that can utilize both Swarm and Kubernetes. Interesting. And based on what your requirements Mm. are. Mm. You're seeing a lot of tools now just getting an even higher level sort of infrastructure button push. You know, you can deploy an entire infrastructure with one button push and orchestrate all of your 
containers. We're just getting closer to, you know, neural interface. Just think it and make it so and things just happen. <laughs> it's Now it comes down to configuration more than actually doing any kind of work to make something happen. Yeah, completely. And I think that's where, again, because of the nature of having this kind of standard open foundation in the film of Kubernetes, it means we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel every time we want to think about, okay, how do we deploy a container into production, right? Kubernetes has solved that problem for us. So now we can think about, okay, how did that work for our organization or how can we become even more effective at deploying our applications and making them more resilient and self kind of like self healing in one of the kind of um, just making them so that we don't have to worry about the day-to-day operations and we can actually focus on delivering value to our customers instead. Where does that leave stuff like DCOS and Mesos? Yeah, so that's where they actually have a lot of advantages to bring, especially when you're considering very large deployments or very large companies. Kubernetes Mm. is very open and it's the foundation, but that also comes with the problem of you need to make a lot of decisions for yourself. Kubernetes doesn't want to have any favorites or it doesn't want to kind of like be one vendor agnostic. It wants to be open and everyone should be able to play and everyone should be welcome to the party, which can be quite daunting when you've got 10,000 developers and they don't really want to manage a Kubernetes cluster. That's where companies like Mesos with DCOS or Red Hat and OpenShift can deliver a opinionated version of what they think Kubernetes should look like. And they say, right, we've picked our way of working with networking. We've picked our security model. We've picked how to do load balancing. You can now deploy against that kind of opinionated version of Kubernetes, and that can then solve and manage your applications for you. And then the teams don't have to worry about the actual underlying details. No, and I I appreciate just sort of trying to put all those things in place that they do have different aspects that you're going to like or not like, depending on who you are. It, it does strike me that, you know, it's in some ways, Kubernetes has sort of fudded the market in the sense of here's a free product, all the big cloud vendors support their own implementations of mm. it, and go, why would you look anywhere else? But yeah. there's, there's obviously some advantages. Hey guys, hold that thought for just one second while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here to announce the NDC Sydney Conference, September 17th through 21st. Go to ndcsydney.com to register. Tell them Carl and Richard sent you. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell, and that's Ben Hall. And we're talking about cloud, and we're talking about cloud native and all the great stuff that you can do. I'm getting afraid, and you can respond to Richard there, but I'm getting afraid that these things are becoming so great and so high level. We're going to run out of things to talk about. Yeah, just use it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Because like with everything, we had solved one problem. So we solved with Kubernetes how to deploy containers and have them managed at great scale across thousands, tens of thousands of machines. Yeah. But now we have other problems, like how do they talk to each other? Um, right. How do we manage dependencies between all of our microservices? Right. Because if we're deploying across 10,000 machines, that means we have, what, 100,000 of microservices? How can we make sure that they're 
talking to each other and actually the service which it claims to be is the service which it should actually be and it's not some rogue service which has accidentally got deployed and kind of like hidden throughout all of the noise and how do you do that ben right just be awesome Um, so this (laughs) is um yeah so this is the next i guess challenge for what we're seeing within kind of this world and it kind of is all falling under the concept of a service mesh. So you're considering your microservices and how they connect in kind of a mesh form with them all talking and all connecting to each other at one of a better point. And how do you manage that successfully? And letting, very similar to what Kubernetes has done for running the actual containers, letting some of the infrastructure take care of the security details, the communication details and how different parts of the system talk to each other so our applications don't have to explicitly be worry about those or explicitly be concerned with that aspect and when i think about this sort of cloud native attitude i want to write as little code as possible like these are the your sort of azure active directory identity type services those are the things you want to just harness you don't want to make any of that yourself correct yeah and it's very similar to like the world of crypto Mm-hmm. and everyone wanting to write about crypto, that was never going to work. And you were never going to build a successful, highly secure cryptography in comparison yeah. to the professionals who spend their entire yeah. careers working on this. Well, and I look at them the same way as the guys back in the early days of .NET said, well, I'll write my own garbage collector, right? Like, it's like, nah, if you were actually good at that, that <laughs> would be your job. Unless you're Chris Sells. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out there was a few people that were actually good at that. And they now all work on that project for the .NET Framework. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes a specialty. It's certainly one of the things I've noticed over time is, and in, in my research around the history of .NET, is like, guys who are really good at writing compilers, that's pretty much all they want to do. And if you haven't got that job for them, they'll go find a different job for it. <laughs> you know, like... Programmers are not infinitely fungible. You can't just go, oh, he's a software developer. He could do this. Or he could do, yeah. you know, put him into any role. It's like, no, people have their things. There's not a lot of crypto guys. There's not a lot of compiler guys. But the few there are, really, really good. Let them do their thing. Yes. And um, that's kind of what we're seeing now with within this container world is we're letting the experts and the people who have done this at huge scales within the likes of Google and Microsoft and Amazon coming together and building these systems and making them open and available to everyone. So everyone doesn't have to figure out 10 years of running microservices at that scale. Instead, we can just build upon what the experience of what has come before and allow us to not go through the same battle scars and lessons that um, we would have otherwise. Yeah, no, I, I totally appreciate that. I also wonder if we're not going to end up with containers on the desktop, just because it seems to be the solution to a lot of the interaction problems and security problems we're having with desktop software. Yeah, that's always been an interesting challenge. Like, it's been tried. We've had application virtualization and other kind of approaches, but it's never really managed to take hold. I know if you are running kind of Linux, life becomes a lot easier in terms of deploying your applications as containers. With Windows containers now on the server, then maybe we're going to start seeing that being pushed down into the Windows 10 kernel. And if that happens, then actually deploying your Windows application as container-based systems Mm. become significantly easier. 
are actually possible, which would be amazing to see mm -hmm. um, and something which I definitely think would be value for everyone um, involved. They yeah. tried to do something like this in the win eight time frame, right? That there was these strong boundaries you were going to have to program within. And, you know, I think containers is the best manifestation of that in the sense of exactly that, the manifest. It's like, these are the privileges that I require. This is the way I'm going to call out to things, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think it required too much of an application change in order to be kind of within everyone's interest. And so if you don't have that developer mindshare and developer adoption and developer story mm -hmm. attached to it, then it's very difficult to motivate everyone to move towards that new approach. Are you dealing with much brownfield software being moved into containers? We're definitely seeing more and more of that happening. Mm -hmm. And this is where companies like Mesos and OpenShift can actually have a greater impact because they have got patterns and practices around how do you move a Java application or .NET application into this new modern world. And they will actually help set up the pipelines and make sure that you have like the essentials in place, like continuous integration and continuous deployment. So that when you are deploying into containers, it becomes a less of a pain point. And that's, that's one of the things which they offer benefits. Like when we're moving brownfield apps, if you don't have continuous integration kind of in place, then running on top of Kubernetes is not really going to solve all of your problems. Like you need to have the fundamentals of, can I automate this build? Can I get my application deployable in an automated way first yeah. before you're going to actually see the benefits of containers? Interesting. But I'm also going to think there's some architectural changes you have to make to your software. Like, make sure you're not storing anything in that container. Like, do you just where is your data live? Those kinds of issues are, are sort of first things you got to address. So there's different approaches that you can take so that's becoming less as critical as it used to be. So that definitely used to be the case. And it, your application would need to be concerned with that. But Kubernetes has got some really interesting features when you start digging into the covers, and particularly how it manages storage and persistence. And so your application can think that it's writing to the local disk, kind of like Alice's normal, kind of like var lib data directory. But Kubernetes can then, when it's deployed, it can mount that directory to an external file system. So be that a NFS or S3 or Azure Disk. And Kubernetes okay. is the one which will actually manage that relationship. And it will manage how does the data get made available? How do you configure all of the Fuse um, Linux file systems and configuration and permissions and make sure that it's available before the application starts? And so this means that your application now no longer needs to be kind of aware and have the concern of like, oh, in this case, we're writing to a network file system or right. in this right. configuration, we're writing to Azure because actually that's an orchestrator infrastructure level issue. Yeah, no, no, your IT guy could decide this for you now. You don't have to deal with it in code. Hmm. Exactly. And that makes it really interesting, especially when you look towards things like machine learning and big data because the data scientists of the world can now write their applications, just write their normal Python code in, like, I want to read data from this directory. And they can run that locally, and it will be great, and they can work on their small data sets 
and they can test it and make sure that it's perfect. And then at scale, when they want to run their day-long, week-long training of the models, the data right. can come from an external source, like a bucket or an S3 or some cloud storage, which can have gig- like gigabytes, terabytes of data. Hmm. But all it's doing is still reading from disk, and then Kubernetes and other orchestrators are managing that relationship between the two. And it makes mm-hmm. the code much more simple, much more focused, and lets orchestrators do what they're good at, which is like figure out how to connect all of these different moving parts. Taking care of the details. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? I must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to disconnect my phone from the cloud, because I was having missed calls. Missed. M-Y-S-T? M-I-S-T. <laughs> missed. Missed, missed calls. calls. Okay. The cloud. It's one of those homonym jokes that doesn't translate on a podcast. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I was thinking M-Y-S-T as you're playing a very ethereal game. Because you're a geek. That's why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots is available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, and Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. That's uh, just about everything. And by implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Patrick Huber. Congratulations, Patrick. Yeah. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for you. And Patrick just won a $200 Amazon gift card from Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Ben. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Yeah, so I was considering this, and 5000 is a substantial amount of money, especially when you think all of the cool little, like, Amazon Alexas and Google Homes aren't anywhere near that. Yeah. So VR is obviously kind of, like, expensive and cool and shiny, so that would be pretty nice. But I think I'd go for not technology, software technology. I think I'd go for kitchen technology. Nice. Actually, you know, have a substantial amount of cool kitchen equipment. You want an immersion circulator, probably? Ah, see, this is where it gets into the shopping catalogs would need to come out. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, nice. But yeah, there's so many cool different things that you could have for the kitchen. 
And then that would actually put the money to good use and kind of be a substantial investment. See, so I have I had type 2 diabetes, so I can actually write off my crock pots and my vacuum sealers and all these things as medical expenses. <laughs> Nicely done. Right. Nicely done. Okay, not really, but I'd like to be able to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's where I think that would uh, be um, welcomely received. Fantastic. Yeah, good stuff. I am, I'm of a mind now that if I get a chance to build another kitchen, I'm going to integrate an immersion circulation system like into the countertop. Oh, so, nice. Uh, basically, a, you know, an under-counter tank that can be drained and filled with an immersion circulation pump integrated into it because the only hassle is setting up and tearing down. Everything else about it is awesome. Yeah. I got to tell you that at Keto Fest, we did 70 pounds of beef chuck roast over 48 hours in Coleman coolers with a hole drilled in the top and an Anova sous vide stick, Anova, Anova precision cooker, which is about $200. And in each one of yep. those things, we did about 14 pounds at a time. And it works nice. great. Yeah, it's a great yes. way to do stuff. Cheap solution. And you know it's working well when it starts to show up in restaurants. Like yep. good steak places now are holding, you know, rare, medium, rare, medium steaks mm. in in immersion bags at the correct temperature. So they yep. just need to sear them off to serve them, and they're perfect. And they're perfect. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I've noticed, I've come to appreciate, is, you know, most people like medium rare, or a lot of people like medium rare. But they only like it because of that transition. Mm. And so when you do medium rare all the way through with uh, yeah. with sous vide, it's sometimes too rare yeah. for, for folks. But it they isn't. It's just they're not used to it. They're used to the crust. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're, they're used to that transition of overcooked to the center being medium rare. Yeah. And so I've certainly done this with a roast now. It's like you just have to cook a little bit more to, so that people are happy with it. All right, what the heck were we talking about? Containers and stuff? We were talking about <laughs> containers. <laughs> Much more interesting to talk about cooking, as we got it. That could be a spin-off podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's just really cool to me how that after every iteration of these technologies, we get more and more high level and more and more of this grunt work is taken away. And, you know, like we're talking about the next level or the next generation of container management. What is that going to look like? Yeah, so above and beyond, so as we mentioned, kind of service meshes, so that will manage all of the communication right. between them. And then beyond that... We're basically making biz talk all over again, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not for <laughs> everyone involved. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the next wave is of, we're going to see more people building on top of Kubernetes. We're going to see Kubernetes style orchestrators run different types of workloads. Yeah. So your big data, things which could have historically been done with like MapReduce and Hadoop. Now all of that workload gets managed within this kind of one Kubernetes aspect. And then we move up the layer and we think like, do we need containers? Right? We have serverless technologies beating the door and functions as a service. So like, mm -hmm. do we need containers? And then other things like the Azure container instances, mm -hmm. which means that we don't actually have to run the container ourselves. Azure will just manage all of that for us. We just need to right. tell Azure what to do. So we don't, we don't get involved in any of the infrastructure at that point. It's all 100% managed by the cloud. Where's the status of, and maybe you know this, Richard, what's the status of Windows containers? Well, I'd, I'd ask Ben what he thinks, because I know <laughs> it's going on, but uh, they work. 
they definitely work. They're definitely getting a lot of awareness. They're getting definitely getting more mature. Mm-hmm. The next thing that we're going to see is Kubernetes and things like Docker Swarm being able to manage them in exactly the same way that they can manage Linux containers. So then your cluster could be hybrid. So you can have different things mm. running on Linux, other things running on Windows, and they can all talk to it together over the one consistent network, which is great for managing kind of like traditional applications, which still require IIS or the .NET Framework 4.5, for example, running within your Windows container, and then all of your more modern ASP.NET Core running on Linux, and they can all talk to each other over the same network, and they will manage via the same consistent pattern. They're all containers, they're all managed by the orchestrators, right? and you just have that one consistent experience no matter what architecture. And I think once we have that, then we'll start to see a lot more companies talking publicly about how Windows containers are helping them yeah, yeah, and right. where they're going towards. But we can see from the announcements of like Docker at the last DockerCon was all about .NET. It was all about Microsoft. It was all very much focused towards helping these types of technologies move into a very container-focused world. And so that shows that they've definitely got the momentum there and it's definitely a problem that can benefit from the solution. And that's where Docker are investing a lot of their time and effort and focus at the moment. Yeah, I guess the real question is, can you run a Windows container on a Linux host? So you still need the Windows kernel, which makes it right. very difficult to run on top of a Linux host at the moment. The more interesting thing that Microsoft are working on is a concept of Linux containers on Windows. And so mm-hmm. Windows can now run both of your container architectures, be that Linux right. or Windows, on the same machine. Right. So I think that's that's kind of where Microsoft are putting some effort, some attention. So making Windows still a great place for running your different types of architectures, different types of workloads. But yeah, I, I still think we're a little way off from seeing Windows containers running natively or semi-natively on Linux. Yeah, right. But who knows? Future is an interesting place. Well, if it could do it one way, theoretically do it the other way. But it is interesting to see that Microsoft, well, the whole Linux subsystem for Windows is crazy powerful. Like, it's really interesting how much Linux support there is inside of Windows. So it doesn't surprise me that it comes out that way. Yeah, so I was fortunate to have Richard Turner from the subsystem team a conference track which I was hosting and we got into the mm-hmm. details of that and it's it's super interesting the work which he's doing it's very much focused on the developer experience so Windows 10 changing the way that the console's working and introducing making sure that Bash and all of the other kind of Linux operating systems are working amazingly on top of Windows and it's right. impressive it, it's a yeah. really mm-hmm. impressive piece of technology and it's now what I use when I'm running Windows on my Surface it's what I use on a daily basis, I just go for Bash, and it's basically the same as when I'm running Linux and OSX. Yeah, I did a show over on the Run As Radio side with a couple of the women that are working on Linux subsystem, and we really got into this whole conversation of there are great you know, Bash scripts and things that you don't want to rewrite in PowerShell, and so 
beyond the making it easier for you as a dev where he gets a Linux environment to be able to use Bash. It's like now production level scripting, you know, and deployment tools that were written for Linux are running just fine in the Windows subsystem for Linux. Mm. Yeah, completely. And there's lots of great utilities, little helper scripts which float around in teams and organizations. And so being able to have that one consistent viewpoint of having everything run anywhere is a great approach. And I think it really helps development teams. So now yeah. when I'm working on my Mac, I can move over to my Surface and everything works. I can still use my same make files. All of my same bash scripts are working. I've got Docker containers for running everything. And so now it just comes down to personal choice about like what actual hardware am mm. I interested in using. Yeah. What do you like? Where are you comfortable? You know, it'll just work. Yeah. I'm super impressed with my Surface. It's a great piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice, portable, lightweight, great battery life. So being able to open up that when I'm traveling definitely adds a huge amount of value. And the fact I don't need to rewrite anything is even better. Right. Yeah, no. Because if you did, like this whole thing is you don't want to do this, it's container-ish or it's Linux-ish. Like Mm. it looks like it, you can demo it, but you can't run the same stuff across it. You want literally the same files running in either environment. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And we tried and we had SigWin, which was Linux-ish. And it did. It got us a long way. It definitely helped with things like Git and the Git adoption. But it was still a little bit kind of difficult around the edges. And so by having oh, yeah, a proper yeah. native solution, it's much cleaner, cleaner, consistent experience. And remove some of the confusion about people becoming familiar with Bash. And if it's not a proper Bash, when they look at things on Stack Overflow and it's not quite right, mm-hmm. everyone gets confused and everyone gets disheartened. Yeah. No, and it's and then the outcome the fangs around, you know, Microsoft is trying to damage things here and so forth and not doing the right thing. And I think that energy sort of sucked that out. I did read that comment about from the GitHub acquisition with Phil Hack because I figured you'd probably have some thoughts there too, you know, that this is yet another of this evolution of Microsoft. Yeah, it's an interesting move. I think it's a great move from the Microsoft side. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely opens up a lot of possibilities from their side. From the GitHub side, I don't think we're probably going to see a lot of changes. No. Initially. Hopefully we'll see some more kind of like more of a long term roadmap about what's gonna happen. We know that it's in safe hands or we trust that it's in safe hands with Microsoft. So hopefully we can start looking, okay, now what features does GitHub need to take it to the next stage? What yeah. else can GitHub offer in order to really enhance open source projects and collaboration? and push everything to the next next stage now that the focus isn't on VC kind of returns because they've got their money yeah. and they're happy. I'm more interested to see what happens with Electron. Well, it's heavily invested with Visual Studio Code. So Yeah, no kidding. Like Microsoft have a vested interest in making sure that that's equally as powerful, if not more powerful now. So who knows? Maybe that will become the foundation for many things and many Microsoft products not just Visual Studio Code. They definitely have the experience internally. Can they make it faster and a smaller footprint, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. However, that pushes up Windows Surface purchases. We all need to go for the top of the line 16 gig to make sure that we can run various different Electron-based applications concurrently. 
at least two. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, I have a question. So, you know, one of the things that we love about serverless, you know, Azure Functions and Lambdas and all that stuff is that there isn't anything necessarily that needs configuration. It just runs. and, And especially the pricing on it is great because you only pay for the time that it's computing and you don't pay for the time that it's just sitting there idle like you do with with other things. Because containers are so lightweight, is it possible to do that with a container? Just have them sort of hanging out, not taking up compute time and have them come to life or sort of shut down when they're not being accessed and come to life when they are? Is that even possible? It definitely is possible. And when you look at certain of the kind of on-premise serverless frameworks, such as Kubeless and OpenFAS, they are basically spinning up containers to handle every single function request, what's coming in. And so they're kind of taking that pain away for you. And so they're still containers at the end of the day. That's still the consistent interface. Mm. But it's being delivered in a function as a service-like experience. Right. And so that's really great when you're running your own Kubernetes cluster or you already have your resources committed for your long-running VMs. This means that you can use these frameworks on top of these orchestrators to get that we only want to use the compute that we need as and when, but we still want the consistency about deploying our application as containers. Right. So that's kind of like where we're seeing that. Sort of the best of both worlds. Yeah, the hybrid approach of we like containers as a packaging format and a build and a automation process, but we want that flexibility of we don't want them hanging around forever. Yeah, and we don't want to pay for downtime, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so those frameworks have definitely come a long way, and they've got a huge amount of support and community around them, which is really impressive. What we're seeing now is things like the container runtimes speeding up that initial launch time so that you can get even more dynamic in your processing. So at the moment, there is an overhead to launch in a container. It may only be like 800 milliseconds, but when you're thinking of a per-request processing time, then that's way too slow. Yeah. Especially if you think of like, okay, so we want every DNS request to be handled as like a serverless. Right. Having it as a container would just be impossible, and you wouldn't get that turnaround time. Right. And so I think that's where... A lot of effort is going into now is like removing some of the kind of overhead of launching that initial container right. so that we can get a much more snappier, quick response. And then we can start seeing kind of like serverless take to the next stage of like, it's not just functions and responding to webhooks. It can yeah. actually be a much more powerful trigger-based system. Right. And that's exactly what I was thinking of, some sort of trigger that is as light as, you know, suspending a thread and then re-enabling it. Exactly, and that's where we kind of need to get to. But that seems like that's the ballywick of serverless. Yeah. That it's got the only bill by the transaction model, so right. you're not like you're paying for a VM or anything. And they have very quick response times. But you give up the configuration and all the stuff that you can do in containers, right? Yeah. So it'd be nice to have the, the best of both worlds. You know, I'm, I'm laughing that we're talking about it taking a second to stand up a container know, that's just too crazy. damn long. <laughs> <laughs> that's too long. I mean, I'm not disagreeing. It's just like, wow, are we unhappy about 800 milliseconds? Is that where we are as a people? 
Push the envelope. That's all. It's a fast moving. <laughs> but plus, I think a container is too much for a single request. That you, you know, I'm still thinking in terms of the way I used to do virtualized web servers, where you have one of everything initially. And as the load starts to go up, you've got a metric that says, hey, light me up another one and load balance them. Now add another one to the cluster, add another one to the cluster. And then as the load comes down, you start shutting them back down again until you're back to the one or the two. Mm. Yeah, so I think this is just a movement of trends. So that is what we have done previously. And we've now moved into, we've gone from VMs to containers. And like having things with functions is, you would think, a linear progression of like making things more lightweight and making things smaller. Mm-hmm. We used to say that spinning up a VM taking 10 minutes was acceptable and fine. And now we've got containers, Mm. which have dramatically reduced that again. And so now we are getting to a point of like, oh, it takes five minutes for the container start. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's way too long. We need to improve that. And it needs to be 30 seconds or something to spin spin up the application, warm up everything it needs and make it available. And I think over time, we're going to see that with serverless and how we do serverless both in the cloud and on containers that it will get from being seconds to being milliseconds. Or not even launching it, right? I mean, you launch it first, and of course, it's going to be a second. That's fine. But then you just sort of put it in a suspended state that gets woken up on a request, and it's practically instantaneous. That's what I would consider, you know, success to that problem. And I think it will be interesting. There's definitely technologies happening which are making that feasible. Um, things like being able to pause the memory state of a container and move that to a different host and then mm. restore it, like similar to live migration with VMs, but at a container mm-hmm. level, which definitely makes it easier to do these kind of pause and suspend without having to worry about downtime. Right. Brave new world. Well, and I still think about containers as very stateless. So it's if you need to move loads, you just light up one on the other location and then shift the networking over to that one and kill the other one but it's it's all a question of what's stateful in the in the container so mm. whether you'd actually bother to move it right yeah and i think that's where it becomes interesting especially when we think brownfield brownfield applications traditionally mm-hmm. think less about stateless and more about stateful even if right. it's just that in-memory cluster and array other things are more like long-running application or long-running processes so Machine learning, for example, you may not want to tear it down and spin it back up on another node because it would have to start that training from scratch. It could right. be just one part of a series of number of trainings, but it could still take a period of time where being able to just pause it and move it across just simplifies that processing aspect. And we've solved this for virtual machines, right? Like you literally start keeping a log of changes while you, know, you sort of freeze the VM in a state, you continue to operate it but you, you're logging all the changes. You sync the file across to the other site, and then you map out the changes back onto it, and you basically get the two settings side by side. Then you hop the load. Like, mm. it's a zero downtime transfer. Right. So you, you could make a version of that for containers. It just seems more complicated than it needs to be, but only if you were in a stateful mode where you care. Exactly. And then I think we need to be aware of different types of workloads and have to support there. It may not be suitable for 90% of the use cases, but those 10%, it could be essential. And it could be Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. difference between moving to containers and not moving to containers. But yeah, we don't know what the future holds. And this could be the key to 
like millisecond response times as a container kind of like dynamically being processed and spin up and spin that down again could be something based around this. Speaking of millisecond response time, what do you think of Cosmos DB? I haven't had the fortunate advantage of playing with it yet. I've heard very good things. It seems like an amazing piece of technology. I have got no idea how they make it happen. Yeah. That starts getting into the world of black magic for me. Yeah, right. But it sounds it sounds amazing. I don't have that type of use case, fortunately. Right. Yeah, it it does seem like overkill for a lot of stuff. And you pay for it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I have heard that it's if not for the faint of heart in terms of pricing. If you've priced out a distributed, you know, geo distributed data store, Cosmos DB is cheap. Mm. If you've looked at it in any other way, you're like, holy crap, it's like 50 bucks per node per month to start. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the, um, as we're getting into like serverless and looking at functions, like, oh my God, everything is amazingly, look at pricing and it's cost effective. When we see the more pricing, which is more reflective of the service being offered, there's a mm-hmm. definite step change, which can yeah. be initially off-putting. Yeah, it's an it's a high end product, but it's you know it's sitting in the same menu as everything else, you know, as blob storage. So you 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 don't necessarily know that it's just this. This is an expensive tool because it does a remarkable thing. Yeah, and I definitely think more and more companies, as we move to this cloud native style of deployments and everything's geolocated and self replicating based on demands. We're going to need a data store to be able to manage and be respectful of that. The last thing you want to do is have all have to travel all the way around the world just to get back that customer record. Um, yeah, for sure. All of your benefits you've done upstream are not going to have an impact. Mm. So it's going to be an interesting time to see how companies adopt to this geolocated, multi-region, globally distributed world. But Azure definitely have a great starting point as do. Google and Amazon are all moving towards this direction. So mm-hmm. I expect yeah. to see more and more similar functionality um, popping up. I agree. Ben, we can't thank you enough for spending this hour with us. It's always fun to talk to you and we always learn something. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to the next time. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.